Well, I'm Tiana Richards. I am a part of the Black History Month Committee, and on behalf of the committee, we would like to welcome you to today's event, Why Suffering Silence? Questioning Mental Health Stigmas and Empowering the African American Community. Now, I would like Rana Judah to come and introduce our guest speakers for the day. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Rana. Uh, we have Dr. Cindy Langley. Dr. Cindy Langley, PsyD, is a licensed clinical psychologist who has focused all of her training and career on working with complex trauma and dissociation in community mental health settings. She completed her doctorate in clinical psychology at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology and her APA accredited pre-doctoral internship at Regional Mental Health Center, RMHC, where she became an outpatient psychologist. After RMHC, Dr. Langley moved to Hartgrove Hospital, where she helped to open and oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the new outpatient clinic. Currently, Dr. Langley is the clinical director of behavioral health services at Bright Star Community Outreach. In this role, she is responsible for supervising and helping to develop the Urban Resilience Network model and overseeing all of the clinical components of Bright Star Community Outreach. Dr. Langley specializes in complex trauma and dissociative disorders. She has facilitated training with students and clinicians throughout Chicago about dissociation and complex trauma. Furthermore, she's an adjunct faculty member at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology where she teaches an adult trauma and treatment course. Lysandra Cotton is a licensed clinical professional counselor at New Leaf Resources in Lansing, Illinois. She works with individuals, couples, families, and children of all ages dealing with grief, loss, attachment issues, self-esteem, trauma recovery, phases of life issues, bipolar disorder, depression, and other mood disorders, PTSD, anxiety, stress, and adjustment issues, marital, family, and relationship issues, divorce-related issues, anger, behavioral problems, and issues within the family system. Lysandra, who completed her Master's of Arts in Clinical Psychology at Wheaton College, has run multiple psychoeducational support groups, including a women's empowerment group, which assisted women in overcoming trauma, as well as a group, uh, a group that assisted members in overcoming panic attacks and managing anxiety. Next, we'll have Tamima Faruqi. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tamima, and it's my great honor to introduce you to our two next panelists, um, Ernest Gray. Ernest Gray is a professor and a pastor. He holds a master's in biblical exodus from Wheaton College and is currently working on his PhD in New Testament language and linguistics from McMaster Divinity School in Canada. For the last 10 years, Ernest Gray has taught undergraduate students in the areas of hermetics, Greek grammar, general epistles, the Gospel of John, and senior seminar at Moody Bible Institute. In addition, he is the pastor for of Keystone Baptist Church in West Garfield Park. Ernest Gray continues to be a big advocate of mental health in his congregation and in his life. He's married to Shania, and together they have two boys, Asher and Elias. 
It is also my great pleasure to introduce to you my colleague, Shania Gray. Shania Gray joined the faculty of Moraine Valley in the fall of 2015 as a counselor and instructor. She is originally from the island of Barbados and holds an undergraduate degree in psychology with first class honors from the University of the West Indies. Shania is a licensed clinical professional counselor and has a Master's of Arts in Clinical Psychology from Wheaton College. Shania, who has been practicing the field in the field of psychology for over 10 years, has experience that ranges from uh, facilitating therapy with adults and families on the west side of Chicago to partnering with attorneys and advocating for the homeless to organizing trainings for churches and community-based organizations. Shania often specializes and does trainings around multicultural counseling, diversity, and cultural competency. She is a board member of the Southwest Chicago Diversity Collaborative, an organization seeking to advocate for equity in and around the 19th Ward. Shania is married to Ernest, and together they have two boys, Elias and Asher. So let's give them a round of applause and welcome them. Can you hear me now? Yes, that's better, right? Okay, well, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming out today. Um, I see colleagues, students, everyone here. And I wanna thank my panel for coming here today. Now we're gonna do a, our panel discussion a little different than normal. So we're gonna be having a kind of a conversational panel. And so we'll be going back and forth um, with questions and so on. And you'll hear the different expertise of the panel. Um, so I want to thank Cindy, Lysandra, and Ernest, who didn't have much of a choice, yeah. but <laughs> for being here today. And then we have in the audience our, uh, our friend Curtis, who actually is here from Kenya. Um, he's here with us uh, to support us as well. So, all right. So today we're talking about mental illness stigmas and empowering the African-American community. And why are we talking about that? Now, why are we even talking about mental illness? You know, on campus here, we have a counseling center um, in the S building, and we have counselors here who, are who we are all trained clinicians, and we see students on campus for a variety of issues, including mental health issues. And why is that so? Why is that important? Well, did you know that one in four persons, so 25% of our population in this country struggles or will struggle with a mental illness? Okay, so that's one in four people, and that's a lot of people, okay? So mental illness is huge. We talk a lot about physical illness, right? When we go to the doctor, you know, something hurts us. If something's bothering us, we go to the doctor, we get treatment, we make sure we follow the protocol. But as a society, we don't talk as much about mental illness. So this is what we're here to talk about today. And we're gonna talk about it specifically as it pertains to the African-American community. And why is that? Well, we're not all the same. We look around the room and we see all the differences that exist among us, okay? We're all different and we're all beautiful. It's like a mosaic. If you've ever seen a mosaic with little pieces of glasses, glass that's all different, um, that's put together to make one beautiful piece. But even as we're all different, we have to address and talk about the differences 
and the needs and the issues and figure out how to solve the problems that exist in different communities in with different people. One problem, one solution doesn't apply to all. That's not fair for everybody. So today, we're gonna specifically look, with it being Black History Month, we're gonna specifically look at what are some of the issues that are specific to the African American community. Now, this chart here um, gives you an idea of, this is from the US Census Bureau, and I looked at the African American population here. So 13% of the US population identifies as black or African American, and of those, over 16% has a diagnosable mental illness in the past year. So that's over six million, 6.8, almost seven million people in this country who are African American who have a diagnosable mental illness. More people than the populations of Chicago, Houston, and Philadelphia combined. So we need to be talking about it. So I'm gonna start off first by showing you this clip. Um, it's from the documentary 13th because we need to talk about the context and why this is happening and what are the reasons in our community. So we'll start off with this clip and then we'll get to talking. One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled, in the world are locked up here in the land of the free. Khalif Browder was walking home from a party when he was stopped by police. Then they said, we're gonna take you to the precinct and most likely we're gonna let you go home and then I never went home. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. Exceptions, including criminals. The loophole was immediately exploited. What you got after that was a rapid transition to a mythology of black criminality. Some people got the real problem. Animals, beasts that needed to be controlled. You better believe it. I'm only human. It became virtually impossible for a politician to run and appear soft on crime. The kinds of kids that are called super predators. Millions of dollars will be allocated for prison and jail facilities. Three strikes and you are out. It was an enormous burden on the black community, but it also violated a sense of core fairness. Some people got the real the states were required to keep these prisons filled, even if nobody was committing a crime. Some it's so difficult to talk about mass incarceration because it has become heavily monetized. The focus is on taking people from prison, putting them in community corrections, parole and probation. How much progress is it really if now there's a private company making money off the GPS monitor? now have more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves back in the 1850s. We are the products of the history that our ancestors chose. Products of that set of choices that we have to understand in order to escape from it. Okay, so if you haven't seen that documentary, it's 13th and it's actually available on Netflix and it's a must-see. I encourage you to see that. Now, um, I'm going to have our panel kind of introduce themselves a little and tell you a little bit about what they do 
and um, just shortly how this pertains to our conversation today, because you will hear more from them as we go on ahead. But I want them to tell you specifically about who they are and what they do. You heard a little bit in the bio, but I want them to go ahead and talk a little bit. So we'll start with Cindy. Fantastic. So. Um, as you heard in the bio, I work for a place called Bright Star Community Outreach, which is on the south side. And at Bright Star, uh, we recently launched a trauma helpline. Um, Pastor Chris Harris, who is the CEO, went to Israel and on an educational trip and ended up at a place called Natal, which does trauma counseling a little outside of the norm. Kind of what you typically think of is going to an outpatient clinic, you see a therapist there, or the counseling center here, that type of thing. The struggle is, though, especially in under-resourced black and brown communities, not exclusively, but specifically, there's a lot of stigma around mental health, which is exactly what we're talking about today. So unfortunately, often they won't come see one of us, okay? But what will happen is they will go see Ernest, because Ernest is their faith leader. And that faith leader has a whole lot of trust within that community that I, especially, as a white person, don't have, okay? So the model is, well, what if we take faith and community leaders, we train them, and we put them on a helpline, and people may be more likely to call that helpline and get some of that help that they need, and then if they need to see a licensed clinician, they'll be more likely to follow through with that referral. The other side of that is we also have what's called ambassadors. Ambassadors go out into the community and train the community, talk to the community about what trauma is. Because way too often what you hear is, that's not trauma, that's just my life. What are you talking about? No, it's, it's trauma, and all of these things that you're experiencing, you don't actually have to experience. You don't have to have nightmares all the time. You don't have to have flashbacks all the time. You don't have to jump every time there's a loud noise. So let's talk about it. Let's figure it out together, and let's start that journey. And then through that, they'll be more likely to call the helpline and then get other additional services that they need. Thank you. Lissandra? Hello. I work at New Leaf Resources, which is a private-owned Christian agency in um, Lansing, which is a south suburb of Illinois, Chicago, and southeast suburb of Chicago. And there, I work with everybody except for addictions. Like, that is my, nope, um, uninterested. Um, however, um, there, I am often, as hmm, within the last year, I have stopped being the only person of color um, that worked in the office. There's generally like one at a time, and that's not intentional. Um, the agency's a beautiful agency, but we've hired another um, black woman. We have a black intern, and it's, it's amazing um, because I can also recall that um, their experiences when I walk someone into my office, they go, oh, this is you? I thought you were just walking me up here. And so there is a presence, um, and there's an immediate comfort of this person is going to understand what I'm dealing with. Um, and so I just see, I see a lot, and, I, and, a, and a lot will come out in the um, discussion as we go forward, so I'm going to stop right there. Hi, my name is Ernest Gray, and um, I'm, I'm privileged to be wed to that wonderful woman there. Um, and um, I think about the complexity of what I do and how I do it. I am in a classroom, but I'm also a practitioner of what I teach in the real world uh, at, a, at a church on the west side. West, side, uh, west Garfield Park, where Keystone is, is uh, plagued with all the inner city problems, right? But in particular, the west side has a real huge um, 
drug traffic issue that, that brings in a number of individuals um, who are coming to, to buy their narcotics. And so what we see is that the people that we reach out to, we have, an, uh, we have a, um, a, a recovery program at the church. These are individuals that are seeking help for their addictions, but a lot of times those addictions are masking hurt and pain. I mean, the community itself is divested of education, divested of uh, good food sources. There, you got to go all the way to Oak Park in order to find some some good resource, some good uh, a good grocery store, and all these things. So, so our church is comprised of people uh, who may have themselves been former addicts, former traumatized, former hurting people, and uh, we are there to be a hospital for them. I was introduced to the church by our brother Curtis, and it's all his fault that I'm uh, even still ministering there, but it, is, uh, it has been the joy of my life to be able to pour my heart out into, uh, into what we're doing on the west side of Chicago. Thank you. And I would say some are former and some are current struggling as well, you know. All right, so we're going to talk about um, this concept. There's a, con there's a book by Dr. Joy DeGroy, and it's called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, okay? And this is what she says, and Cindy can speak more to it because I know Bright Star uses a lot of this um, philosophy in their work and, and this orientation, kind of the backdrop. So post-traumatic slave syndrome is a theory that explains the etiology of many of the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities throughout the US and the diaspora. It is a condition that exists as a consequence of multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants resulting from centuries of chattel slavery. A form of slavery which was predicated on the belief that African Americans were inherently genetically inferior to whites. This was then followed by institutionalized racism which continues to perpetuate injury. Thus resulting in MAP, multi-generational trauma together with continued oppression, absence of opportunity to heal or access the benefits available in the society, which leads to the post-traumatic slave syndrome. Now, Cindy, tell us a little bit more about this, because in order to talk about this issue, we have to talk about our community. We have to talk about the state people are in, right? We can't just look over that. So can we talk a little bit more about this? Absolutely. So I think I think one of the many things that we struggle with as a society is we like to deny our history. And, and that is exactly what this hits on, is that we have to own the history that African Americans were brought over here on slave ships to be enslaved. Okay, And when slavery ended, it didn't just magically get better. Right? If you're a slave one day, you don't suddenly be able to be free and have your own land and have an education and do what you want to do, right? And then we went into Jim Crow laws, and it continues today as shown in that movie, The 13th, okay? And lots of people within society, which she, she hits on a lot, think, says, well, you know, we're, we're all equal. We all have opportunities. You just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that, that's just not the case, because if I am a poor African-American kid on the South Side, I don't get the same education that somebody does in the North Shore. And if I don't get that education there, 
how am I then going to end up in college? How am I going to end up having a good job? How am I even going to know how to present myself in an interview to get that good job? And so a lot of what she hits on, if you haven't read this book, if you haven't ever heard of her, please do. Um, I recommend it for everyone. I think it speaks to different populations in different ways. Um, but for those of us who are white, we have to own this history. We have to understand what our ancestors did and the privilege that we continue to have. And we have to use that privilege to speak out in many different ways, okay? Because mass incarceration, problems with schools, police brutality, the list just goes on and on. If we don't get involved and we don't advocate, that's a problem. Okay, and so please, everyone, get this book and read it. Clearly, I have all sorts of passion, and um, she just, I think part of it is she spells it out very clearly, and it's, it's a really powerful read, but it's also a very digestible read. Yes, good. So, so as we talk about this, let's talk about some of the issues that are unique to our community, to the African-American community, so that therapists and that people who are working with that population and with us need to know in order to treat people or work with people who are African-American. So what are some of the issues we're facing that are unique to our community? So we talk about this, this post-traumatic slave syndrome. Lissandra, what else do you think? Well, there are all these underlying, or not even underlying, they're the top. Um, I think about, and I, and I said this earlier, when we think about this, I'm gonna call it the Sandra Bland era, era where people are afraid to drive their car if you're black. If you're not black, you don't have a problem, you can drive. Um, the, the thought of, um, anybody in this room watch Grey's Anatomy besides me? Did everybody see the episode they did of the little boy that got shot? Yes. And so what I appreciated was the way that they intricately told that story from all sides. Um, but the other side is there are conversations that Cheyenne, Ernest, and I, have had to have with our children that Cindy does not. And they just don't happen. I don't, I don't, I don't know of, and if it's, if it's not the truth, somebody has to tell me because I have not yet met the person that says when the police stop you, don't curse them out. Don't move suddenly. Don't get out of your car. Don't reach for your ID even though they asked for your ID. You know, and so when the person comes in and they're suffering from anxiety, and I don't say, so how is this current climate affecting you? How, how did that affect you when this happened in the news? How did that affect you when the president of the country did not address this? How did that affect you? Because all of that is there, and they may not bring it up. They're going to come in, and, and, and they have just normal, everyday issues. My husband's getting on my nerves, and I can't stand my boss, and my kids, blah, 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 blah. My anxiety was heightened this week. And if I'm not conscientious of what's happening in the current climate, I'll miss that to say, oh, well, what's going on this week? Nothing you know, I can think of. Well, you know, there was a shooting in the schools and the kid was apprehended safely. If you are a black person, you have reactions because black people are never apparently on the media apprehended safely. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so that is another underlying issue. It's the stuff that we don't, 
it's not always conscious. A lot of the things that bring us to therapy are the obvious, I can't stand my spouse issues or my kids, whatever. But underlying, every therapist on this panel knows that the issues that bring you in are not the real issues. So we look at this model here, right? Mm -hmm. And this is from the Surgeon General. Mental health disparities factor. Okay, so on top of the everyday issues, people of color, um, including African Americans, are dealing with these issues at any one point in time. So it's like layered, one on top of the other. Mm -hmm. So racism, discrimination, poverty, violence, they're all there, right? And then you're dealing with other issues. Or as a student, you're dealing with these issues and you're coming to school and you have to deal with your education and your class and so on. So your instructor might be like, why you would turn in your paper and so on and so forth, but they don't get what you're dealing with in the outside world, okay? So some other issues, let's talk about, let's get this one for a minute, but let's talk about something, black beauty, okay? So one, some of the issues that pertain to our community um, includes issues of beauty, what we see as beauty and strength. So specifically for females, all right? So this image here was how black women would be portrayed in the past, right? And very often you were told or you were taught you weren't beautiful. You are not the Anglo depiction of beauty. You don't have the long straight hair, the thin nose, the slender features. You're not the depiction of beauty, okay? I posted yesterday this picture on Facebook that came out on Essence, which was beautiful, okay? To see darker, and one of the things too in our society is you'll start to see African Americans in movies and so on, but you always notice the skin color issue. So often they're lighter color, right? So it is a phenomena to see chocolate color, chocolate colored women who are beautiful, on covers of magazines and in movies, right? And you, can you imagine what this does to a little black girl out there who's that color, who looks like that, say, wow, somebody like me. And they're beautiful. Because we internalize so much as people, messages that are said aloud and messages that are just sent through the TV, through what people say around us, through what we observe, and so, Black beauty has always been an issue um, that has been plaguing our self-esteem and our community and so on. Do you ladies want to say anything about the beauty issue? Lissandra, I know you talk a lot about the strong black woman. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I do talk about the strong black woman because if, if you're a black woman, you handle it. You just have to get it done. You just have to. Can everybody hear me? I don't know if I'm good with this. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you don't have time to break down. We have to support our men because they're fragile. I'm just talking about the message that I, I received growing up. Maybe no one else received those messages. And so you don't have time to break down. You don't have time to stop. You're sick, and if your husband is sick and your kids are sick, who's taking care of the sick people in the house? Mom. And she still has to go to work, and we still have to get food on that table, and this house still needs to be clean. I, I, and so this, this, this need to look pretty, like I'm wearing a weave, I could care less. I, this is not my, I don't care. You see my edges? This is my edges. <laughs> and when my husband says to me, babe, what's going on with your edges? God made them that way. <laughs> I'm not gelling it down and make it all pretty for you because I really, I don't really care about this. But my beautician was like, can we put your hair up? But because I know I'm beautiful, 
and my beauty lies within who I am and who, for me as, as, a, as a Christian, who God created me to be, then I recognize my strength in a very different way. So it's not made up of what my hair looks like, whether I have makeup on, I rarely wear makeup, because as a strong black woman, how many heard that's her? As a strong black woman, I was taught that if I cried, I'm weak. How many people think, how many com comfortable crying in this room? I wanna see hands. If I'm a female, I can cry, but if I'm a man, I absolutely cannot cry because I'm a punk. You heard that? Okay, and so I'm gonna say this very crass explanation on crying. So I have my people, who in here rarely cry? Okay. Did anybody tell you specifically, don't cry? Okay, all right. I never heard it specifically. I just never, ever, ever witnessed my mother or my grandmother or my godmother cry. How many people have that? Okay, so when you don't witness something as a normal occurrence, when you see it, you have a what's wrong with you type of reaction because if you were strong. And then if you're of the Christian faith, why are you crying take it to Jesus? I'm just talking about, so we come up with all of these silent messages that we've internalized, and now we think they're truths. And so how many people associate crying with strength? For the rest of your life, you, not, you will not after I say this. And it's crass, so I'm going to tell you right now. So if you are weak, people cry. Crying is an expression of emotion, period. It has nothing to do with weak, weakness or strength. Now. You shake your head like, right, I get that, but you don't. Because you, when you struggle, you don't allow yourself to cry. So how many people in here are weak when they go pee? <laughs> See what I'm saying? Urinating is a natural release of waste from our body. And so how many people have had to urinate and couldn't go? How do you start to feel? Starts to be uncomfortable. If I still can't go, it becomes painful. I mean, people have had ultrasound. Yes. <laughs> Fill up before you get here. Yeah. <laughs> so I filled up, they ran behind. What resulted was a week of pain every time I went to the washroom mm. because I held too long. Mm. They don't play that game with me anymore. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I start drinking when I get there. Like, I don't care if you're waiting on me. Mm. <laughs> However, so. This natural way we have of releasing waste, our bodies are created with everything we need as a, a way to release emotion, and that's tears. So when I hold in the waste, that causes pain, discomfort, eventually a medical issue if my bladder bursts. And that was on Grey's Anatomy too, just in case y'all never saw that episode. Because <laughs> I love my Grey's. In any case, the same results with tears. When I don't allow myself to cry, then I hold that in. Now I'm having headaches and stomach aches and I'm queasy and I'm a little anxious and now I'm having ulcers and heartache and now I'm having diabetes and cancer. You understand what I'm saying? So a natural release is just to let the tear down because it's absolutely nothing to do with your strength just like peeing doesn't. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So what about, so we see, you see here, she's smiling, right? So this isn't your typical depressed person, right? And you see here the mask when the mask comes off, right? So you talk about that black woman's strength. Mm -hmm. And a person may not always look like they're going through it because they've been thought that you suck it up. Mm 
and you keep moving because you got to, right? You got to keep the family going. You got to keep thing life going. So just suck it up and keep moving, right? So it doesn't always look like how we're taught it's supposed to look. It looks different. And that's something we have to keep in mind where we're talking about this conversation um, in the African-American community and mental illness is that it looks different than what we think it should look like. Okay, so go ahead, Cindy. Can I add one quick? So I, I recently heard a stat that um, African-American women, when they die, they typically look on the outside 10 to 15 years younger than their age. On the inside, however, all of their organs look 10 to 15 years older than they are. Yes, yes. I was telling my students in class on Monday, um, the when you're stressed, the cortisol is released in your body, right? The stress hormone. And that puts wear and tear on your body. And that's why we have the mental and physical that are so closely connected. And that is something we have to think about, right? That connection, that, so being aware that stress really impacts us mentally and physically and dealing with that. So we talk about the ladies the bl black beauty for female. So let's talk about black males now and some of the issues that are unique to them. Okay? So I'm, a, I'm gonna let you jump in here, honey. Sure, why not? If the image of distress among black women is masked or present, it presents features in different ways, the same is true for black males. Notice that image there. He looks like my metaphor for life, right? My metaphor looks a little different. Mine is, it looks like that, but it's more I'm climbing a mountain with cinder blocks on my feet. It may, maybe that fits well for some black males. It fits well for me. I'm climbing a mountain with cinder blocks on my feet. That's my metaphor uh, for my life. Why? It's because of the complexity and the varieties of things that have converged upon my life that I have to overcome. So first, I go to the store. I can't. I get walked around. I get followed around the store because I'm, sus I'm sus suspicious until found innocent, right? You, not, not innocent until discovered suspicious, but I'm suspicious first, and then it's discovered, oh, you're normal. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm seen as uh, inferior to, or perhaps uh, I need some, I, 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 there's an assumption, there's a bias that automatically uh, there's something inferior about my ability to, uh, to you know, carry out my position. So for instance, uh, when, I, when my wife and I were in Israel, uh, she didn't notice, she noticed this, but I didn't this first, but we were having a whole bunch of um, septuagenarians or older 60, 70 year old patrons and participants who were on a bus with us, it was about 60 of us, and the majority of them were Caucasian. And when they got on the bus and they saw that I was the teacher, they said, oh, you, oh, I, I didn't know that you could teach. So the assumption was, well, where's the teacher? You're the teacher? Oh, okay. All right. So I'm already uh, seen as not having the skill set that I need. Then there's the, then there's the whole, uh, the, we already talked upon the, the police issue, uh, the suspicious, the, the, the driving while black issue. That, that's a whole other thing. So all of these things are metaphors of burdens that I carry around no matter where I go. And then I look on the television set, and I'm always cringing because when I hear that a crime has been committed, I want to hear the description. Mm -hmm. I want to know first. If I don't hear a description, then I might just assume that it wasn't a black person mm -hmm. because I hear the black description first. Generally speaking, that's been my assumption. That's what I've observed. 
And so when I think about all these things, and I'm just one person who's done fairly well for himself. I've done very well for myself, but I still carry around that burden. So yeah, I got center blocks on my feet. And it does create this sense of uh, discomfort as I navigate life. Why? Because I could see counterparts, I could see colleagues who are not my race, whose experiences are different, and they won't even take the time to try to understand mine, or realize that I've had to, I've had to do similar work and then some in order to be at the same level or to perform at the same level as my Caucasian colleagues or non-white co or other colleagues who are. Uh, who I work with. So, so all of these things add to the weight and the burden of me trying to carry out my life and trying to, uh, trying to be uh, a person who uh, helps others as well. So, and then that's only one aspect of my life. The other aspect is being in the black church and seeing the trauma and having to talk to parishioners who come to me and they want to ask, they want, they want me to have a silver bullet to solve their problems so that they don't have to come to them. <laughs> no, we're going to come back to the black church a yeah. little later. But so. anyway, long story short. So, so, so that metaphor is extremely appropriate because in, uh, it does capture the sentiment of a lot of what a, a lot of black men have to, to do. Not only that, but um, it, creates a, it creates a low grade sense of self-worth, a, a low grade sense about black males that they carry around, like a low grade depression that a lot of black men struggle with. I'm just gonna read something for you quickly and we'll continue talking about black males and, and mental illness, okay? This is a, a quote from, The Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching: A Young Black Man's Education by Michael Denzel Smith. He says, I now know many people who have lived with depression, but that's a retroactive designation. When I was 21, no one in my life would have said they suffered from depression. Plenty of people said they were depressed, which generally meant really sad. But no one would cop to a mental illness. The only people I knew who had gone to a psychiatrist and talked about it openly were in Woody Allen movies. For several decades, white people in the professional and artistic classes have been able to wear their weekly analysis sessions as a badge of intellect, while the rest of us have had to struggle with the stigma of mental illness, a stigma that is especially strong in the black communities. Black people have every reason to be distrustful of mental health care in this country. Psychiatric institutions have largely functioned as another form of prison and mental illnesses are often attributed to black people despite their completely rational behaviors. But that doesn't mean we don't suffer often in silence. So we, um, and I'm gonna let Lissandra, I know she has to contribute to this. Now this is Quintonio Legrere. I don't know if any of you remember this in the media. In 2015, he was a Northern Illinois student who came home to the west side um, he was staying with his dad in their home, and he was waving a bat around. I think the father called the police. It was a domestic disturbance. He came, opened the door with the bat. I think, no, I think he was the one that called the police. He called the police three different times, and finally, on the third time, 
So he called the police three different times, clearly very distressed. If you Google this, you can still find the 911 tapes. Very distressed every single time. And he got hung up on multiple times. It was not until his father called, and that was when he was waving the bat. His father, who, by the way, was very abusive his entire life, mm -hmm. sexually abused him his entire life. Mm -hmm. His father calls, then the police come. Yes. So he opens the door with the bat. To the police. Yes. And bam, he's killed. Right. Recently, the police was trying to sue his family. You heard about that, right? They were trying to sue his family. Um, and so he ended up dead. And as you read his narrative, and nobody ever had, I do not remember a media conversation about his mental illness. But when you read between the lines, that he started acting strange that summer. And he had different symptoms that had started to manifest. But you didn't hear this in the conversation, right? We heard about the shooting yesterday. We heard about two shootings yesterday, right? So the first shooting we heard, well, two days ago was the police commander, right? Did we hear mental illness discussing the guy who killed the police commander? No, right? But then we hear about the shooting in Florida, and what happens? We go to that mental illness conversation. We go to the narrative. We go to that narrative, right? So Quintonio Legrere, an engineering student in Northern Illinois. Nobody ever discussed him being mentally ill, but he was. And I don't think his family had really known either, right? So I don't think he had ever been to treatment or any such thing. And so that wasn't dealt with. And so he was a great, he's a good example of what happens in our community. Lysandra? The only thing I wanted to add, it was, it was tapping on to what Ernest was saying about the image and the world on his back. I wanted to add to that because you've done very, very well for yourself and, and you're still doing well and you've married, you've married up, you know, <laughs> shoot, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, you've done that. Yeah, yeah. And so I would look at you and say, what a success story, what a model. And so I would look at me and I'd say, what a success story, what a model. And there's another burden. There's another burden because I and you and we, we're the representatives of the black community. So now people look to me and to say, what do the black people think? <laughs> I know what Lysandra thinks. <laughs> I can speak for Lysandra. And if I talk to Ernest, I can even throw in what he thinks. But the whole black community? Doesn't that sound crazy? Let me try it. What do white people say? <laughs> Hell if I know. <laughs> aren't we all different? Yes. However, when you have arrived, one situation that I had when I arrived, in quotes, because I don't think I've arrived. When I arrived, the, the, the supporters in my community who pushed me to go to school suddenly became insecure yes. by my success. So then they said things like, do you think you're better than us now that you have an education? Gosh, no, I think that. So there's a burden of trying to pull you up with me there's the burden of when you watch the news, I don't know if it's like this for you, Ernest, please don't let them be black. Please don't let them be black. Oh God, they're black. Because there's this burden of you, there's this burden that whatever, yes, for the whole community. One person. How stupid is that? But that regularly happens, so that adds to the boulder. When, I, when I'm mad at the pharmacy, I had a bad issue, experience at the pharmacy, and I'm really sick, and the pharmacist forgot me. The, 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 it needed a pre-auth, she forgot me. So I waited for 45 minutes. I am sick, nobody visits the pharmacy because they're well. So she was like, oh, I forgot. 
the vision that I had in my head was to take her face and slam it into the counter. Now that's violent, is all. I'm that kind of therapist. I'll tell you, know, my clients love me. However, I really wanted to do that. But I'm also a common sense thinking kind of girl. <laughs> so on the outside, and the inside, I thought, slam her face down. And the other side says, behind you in line will be your client that you're teaching anger management skills with her <laughs> phone out. And on the other side will be one of your church members going, grace and peace. <laughs> so I don't have the luxury of just having a really normal reaction. But had I flipped, had I just said, what the is your problem? How many people would have looked at me like the angry black chick? So we have the, 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 the burdens of the stereotypes and being the one and pulling you up and being embarrassed by the one because you're going to set the whole group of us back. Which, do you feel like that? Did you feel like that yesterday when the shooter happened? No, absolutely not because it's not, it's not all white people. I can react that way at the pharmacy. I can get all sorts of snotty because I've been waiting here 45 minutes and I'm tired and I'm sick and nobody's going to look at me. Nobody's going to say anything. Nobody's going to pull their phone out. I am not representing all white people. I'm not even, even me, myself, nobody's going to think that negatively about me. They're going to continue to help me, and they're going to continue to be polite and do what they're supposed to do. So that's an extra burden, right? So, Cindy, tell me a little bit with Bright Star, and I know they're doing a lot of work around the violence in the city, and we hear about this conversation every night on the news and how awful the violence is and what's wrong with those people and why can't they just get it together and so on. And this pertains primarily to African-American young men. Now I know for a fact, and you might know this statistic better, um, when you look at juveniles, okay, so the statistic that there are a lot of African-American male juveniles who end up in juvie when they're mentally ill but their white counterparts usually get treatment, right? So the same thing with being suspended from school and expo um, ex, uh, expelled and so on. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, again, that's where all of the stereotypes come in. Right? How many have heard about the problem of black-on-black -black crime? Yeah. Uh-huh. Some myth. What, what is that exactly, right? It is. Yeah, no, it is. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And yet, that's the narrative that continues to be told. Every single time the news comes on, it's black on black crime. That's the problem. We have this. It's a, a hyper a hyper propensity because mm -hmm. of our, it's it's inherited in our DNA that we are just more violent than any other. But it's mm -hmm. white on white crime. It's mm -hmm. proportionate to the demographic in which the violence mm -hmm. shows up. Because last time I checked, a white dude killed eighteen kids yesterday. Is that white on white crime? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, but but that's not the narrative that's being told, right? No, he's really mentally ill, and that's the problem, right? Whereas the south side of Chicago, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about the fact that these kids are struggling to get to school and back home safe every day, that they're hearing gunshots outside of their house every day, that even when they get to school, they're in school with 35 other kids packed in the same class with one teacher, who is probably brand new, and probably some white girl from Wisconsin <laughs> who's coming to save the world, and good for her, mm -hmm. except for she doesn't understand where she is and what she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so she doesn't know how to work with all of these traumatized kids and help them be able to learn. 
And then they get shoved along. First grade, they can't really read, but you know what? We're going to shove them on to second grade. And then third grade. And then fourth grade. And then when they become a teenager and they're struggling and their family doesn't have enough food, because we're going to continue to cut food stamps. And now not only are we going to cut food stamps, but we're going to decide what you get to eat. Because 45 just recently started talking about that, right? And by the way, those things don't include fruits and vegetables. Right, because you can't, you can't have steak, because I should get to decide what you eat, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not even bringing in the problems of food deserts and all of these other things. It becomes really hard. And sometimes the best way for me to keep myself safe is to start associating with those guys on the corner. Because I know then I'm going to be safe. But even if I don't associate with them, I'm still associated with them. We always hear, oh, it was gang-affiliated, even if it isn't. Even if I am just a kid who's trying to get to school, and I'm working really hard, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, because I'm African-American, and I'm on the South Side, and I'm a 15-year-old boy, it was gang-affiliated. Tell us about how trauma affects the brain, so how their brain is rewired. Tell us about that when you constantly live in that state. Mm -hmm. So you are you have to become hypervigilant, okay? So uh, hypervigilance essentially means I'm looking over my shoulder and I'm prepared for anything at any time, okay? You hear Chicago described all the time as Chirac. It's a war zone, okay? I don't really like that terminology at all, but there's also some truth to if I don't feel safe anytime I go to or from school, I have to start paying attention to everything that's going on. And then, often when I get home, home isn't necessarily a safe place either. For many, the stuff on the streets, that's okay. I can deal with that. When that door closes at the end of the day, though, that's where the problem is. Right? And that a lot of that is because we don't have good parenting education. We don't have good support. Somebody, you know, in, if I live on the North Shore and I'm having some problems parenting my kid, I'm going to be able to go and get the help that I need. And nobody's going to judge me for struggling to know how to parent my kid. And I'm going to have the insurance to do it. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And not to have to travel two hours to get to the place after I've waited nine months to be able to get into that place. Yes, yes. So you mentioned something, and we're going to we go on to um, this picture, right? So what's the big deal, all right? So we had Obama in office, now we have Trump in office. What's the big deal? You mentioned the hypervigilance mm -hmm. um, and the burden, and we're talking about the issues that play. What, how does him, how does 45 being in office, how has that added to the stress and the burden within the black community? Go I'll ahead, start. Baby. Okay. <laughs> 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 I got a friend from Gulfport who introduced Cindy to us who said that Katrina knocked the Gulf Coast 30 years back. The storm, the Hurricane Katrina, 10 years ago in 2005, oh, 13 now, sorry, <laughs> knocked the Gulf Coast, New Orleans, ten, 30 years back, knocked them back, recovering from it. It feels like a tsunami of regression with regard to dialogue, 
with regard to human decency, with regard to the ability to see humanity in everyone has been knocked back 45 years, to use that term. <laughs> it's, it's almost as if we've lost the momentum. And let's be frank, I mean, for uh, there, it, the progress that has come throughout the country, we've only been 1964, 65, is, I can't do my math on top of my head, it's only 55, 53 years, something along those lines. Uh, it's only been 53, 54 years since the Voting Rights Act was ratified. So we're not far from affirming African Americans in this country uh, and their abilities to be full-fledged citizens. Now it feels like that's all in jeopardy from the way in which gerrymandering happens in, 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 in a lot of the voting polls in the, in the South and the way, in which, uh, the way in which voter IDs laws are now only plaguing communities of color. Mm -hmm. Let me take it to the church. We have had a place, the faith communities that you belong to, that you are a part of, are so essential right now because would the, these faith communities have been what brought us through those moments. 54 years ago, it was the faith communities that allowed us to persevere, that allowed us to uh, band together, to batten down the hatches, and to get through the pain. And it feels like these places are now being resurrected as, as more necessary because people are facing the same conversations and facing the same dilemmas that our, that our, that our parents and grandparents were going through. Uh, during the civil rights era. I'm just speaking broad terms about yeah. the, the difference here, yeah. but, it, but what, why do I say the rhetoric? When you equivocate moral evil, reprehensible acts, and say that people are good on both sides, when you call the Klan and their actions as being comprised of good people, when you, when you mess up and you make statements and you do harm to women, all of these things, so that no, all right, I'm going to say this, I need to say this, so the, in the joke we were sharing in the office is that they know this pastor friend of mine, and he and I were in this text conversation, I said, Jesse Jackson was ahead of his time. When he coined the phrase, keep hope alive, ahead of his time. Because in these moments, hope is what we have. It's what we have to cling to. Because the way I see it right now, it's, this ain't going to turn out good for us. And by us, my friend said, you mean the human race. Yeah. <laughs> because we're not making, we're not having gains. We made some gains in relating to each other and affirming each other and seeing each other. I told my wife, she was with me the night Barack Obama was elected, I could look at every man as a black man in this country. I could look at every single man in the eye now. It was something interestingly magical about that night that I could look at every single man dead in the eye and feel equal. I felt that. Okay, thank you. Um, I, was, I was looking at I, the dismissing portion, we dismiss. When we say, you're just mad because the Democrats lost, that is so dismissive. It, this is not a political conversation, though it's political climate. So I think where another one of the gaps happen when we look here is that um, if Barack Obama had done a tenth or said a tenth of what number 45, I literally cannot disrespect the office and call him that name. 
Um, if, if he had done a tenth of what this man does, making fun of disabled people um, at rallies, it was like, you know, we would have done, we would have taken them out. Like, he, he just has the rhetoric that's very dangerous and insightful. Absolutely. And then in addition to that, there is the sexual harassment or assault that he's admitted to, um, which is all fake news and alternative facts. However, the reality is I am not having a political conversation. I am having, as, as a mental health professional, the question that I have is, is it delusional thinking or is he lying? Like, does he absolutely believe the things he's saying? So when he was running, I said, am I looking at a narcissist or a sociopath? This, the mental health professional in me was very concerned at the people who were then swept in by party. I don't give a darn about Democrat, Republican, Independent, and fill in the blank of the 900 million more that came behind it, because that is what a democracy is. That is what we've had in this country. So um, the running joke in my house was my father was a Democratic Republican who voted Republican every single time <laughs> my whole little life. So my mom was like, well, me and your dad's votes are going to cancel each other out. So again, <laughs> so again it's not about political, the, the, the political piece for me. This is about the the attitude that came with this man, the, the experiences. Here's what I appreciate, ha ha, here's what I appreciate about number 45. He has pulled the veil back. And so when a, when, a, when a person of color says, here's what happened to me. I had a very bad experience. I'm an intelligent, educated black woman. And I speak intelligently and I can get along in any crowd. I'm highly adaptable. That is who I am. That's not bragging, I'm just telling you who I am. And so when I tell you an instance or a story, you're entertained, you like it, you taught me something, blah, 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 blah. When I, this same person, come to you and say, this experience, is I, this experience I just had as a black woman suffering in behalf of racism, I'm questioned. Mm. I have a problem with being questioned. Believe. Because you didn't disbelieve me when I told you the other stories. Yeah. But when I say, this happened, you say, well, are you sure? Maybe you're being too sensitive. Maybe you're overreacting. I don't really think that happened. So with number 45, what I appreciate is the veil has been pulled back. Because now I have people that are shocked. They're shocked. I have a, I have a, little, a few feelings about their shock because I, I've been telling you this for 40 years. What the hell? Do I not speak English? But you're shocked. So I appreciate that the veil has been pulled back. And it's scary. And so as we keep hope alive, while it's scary, keep going. Because in therapy world, it gets worse before it gets better. And so I tell people, you're going to uncover some things that you don't want to deal with. And it's scary, keep going. So we've pulled the veil back. And now, if you want to know, it's right there in your face. If you continue to disbelieve, that's because that's a part of who you are. That's just the excess that I'm making. So people don't even feel safe. And when you don't feel safe, it's hard for you to function, Absolutely. right? So you have that primary, if anybody's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and safety is, is there on the first, on the base level. So if you don't feel safe, right. then that adds to everything else. You can't function, mm -hmm. right? And for me, not even growing up here, but since November of 2016, I've just had this feeling on me. 
you know, like this heaviness. Like I know it's there for my two black boys, for my husband and all these things, you know. So we got to move on. Um, I want to talk. So all these issues exist, right, um, within our community. We know there's a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, and so on. Um, why is it so difficult? So we talk about there's a stigma that exists around mental illness. Why is it so difficult, you think, for people to seek out help? And we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. Um, why do you think it's so hard for people to seek out help? In my community first, where I share, we were having this conversation privately, but it's that stigma that says, um, you know, you minister in a faith community, and if there's something wrong, you should just bring it to Jesus. And, you know, if you should just carry it to him and leave it there, well, it doesn't go away. If the, if the complexity of the issue requires someone else to get involved and you need a little bit of assistance and you need somebody to, um, to walk with you through your pain, then you might need to, it, then prayer may not be enough. And My so diabetes, I don't take to Jesus and leave it there. See, and, and, and it all depends upon the, the the community that you that you side with, because there's extremes in that whole continuum, right? There's extremes all up in that, and so the stigma is there. And I think it's probably a previous two, our, a couple of generations before. I'll call them the boomers. The boomers were big on this. I think, um, especially those during the era, African American men and women during the era of slavery, or during the era of civil rights, uh, they didn't. They really just kind of persevered. They ignored the pain. They shoved it. They they kind of masked it, and they just kept with their cinder blocks, you climbing the mountain. You gotta keep going. You have gotta to. keep going. You, you can't no stop. Choice. You cannot stop. You gotta keep going. You gotta keep fighting. And so it's the ignoring, it's the shoving down of the pain. Yes. Go ahead. Because, and I'm gonna tie it back into what we started off with, the post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Um, I'm gonna tie it to that because when your forefathers are slaves, I don't care what kind of day you're having. You cannot tell the master that you are not going to work today. So I tell my children, suck it up. And so what, what happened in a place of survival, survival skills are not life skills. And survival skills used as life skills will kill you. So when I am in survival mode, our ancestors were in survival mode. So the decisions that I make are in survival mode. Yes. But it, once I come out of survival mode, if I'm not aware that I was even in survival mode, I continue in the practice and I use them as life skills. So life skill says, I cannot sweat, I must keep going, I must not stop, and I have put that in. It goes back to the strong black woman, the strong black man. We have to keep going, there is no choice. Yes, can I add in one thing? So there's been studies done on rats, because that's what studies are often done on, that show that a rat who is traumatized, will it will change their brain. It will also change the brain of seven generations after that rat. So everybody likes to say, oh, slavery was a long time ago. No, it wasn't. Because all those slaves' brains were changed. And then it, as we talked about, it's continued. And so it doesn't matter that I wasn't a slave if one of my ancestors was it can continue to affect me. The vestiges of it haven't gone anywhere. You still see traces of it. Uh, you see it embedded in systems. You still see it embedded in, um, you know, systems, especially those that are that are bound by white supremacy in some regard. So, so what y'all are saying is essentially, um, we have to be. We're told to be strong, right? That stigma. So, if you need additional help, you're weak. 
almost, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things with, and I want to move on to this quote here um, by Selma de Leon Ninaza. She just came out, of, uh, came out of counseling today. She say, the counseling profession was developed by and for the American dominant culture. Male, white, heterosexual, cisgender, non-disabled. In our counselor education programs, we continue to disseminate theories written for and normed for the dominant culture. Despite rapidly changing demographics, more contemporary constructivist and feminist theories tend to be covered in courses as ancillary and not major theories. Not just counseling. But Cindy, yes. yes. And in higher ed and in all different aspects. But Cindy, can you speak to that? Absolutely, yes. So um, I'm going to go back to Joy DeGroo for a minute because she came to Chicago, I don't remember, nine months ago, something like that. And she, she said two things that continue to stick with me and continue to mess with me as a white woman. And that I have to continually think about in all of my interactions, okay? Because most of my clients, the vast majority, are African American. All of my colleagues, those above and those that I supervise, are all African American, okay? So the two things were she talked about the difference between rapport and relationship, okay? And within the field of therapy, we're taught, well, you just you just need to build rapport, okay? But that, that's not enough, right? The four of us have some sort of rapport with many of you in the audience, right? If we didn't, you would have gotten up and left. But I don't have a relationship with any one of you. And without that relationship, how can I really be part of the journey that you're on to help you get to whatever path that you want to get to? Okay? That means I really have to invest. I really have to be engaged and not just say, well, uh, you know, it's been 45 minutes. It's, it's time to be done. The other piece is the difference culturally that as white people, we tend to do person to object, okay? And I know I am guilty of this often, okay? So person to object, I have a really quick question. I'm not even going to say good morning. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to my question because I need my answer, okay? African-American, Latino, it's person to person. I'm going to say good morning, I'm going to ask about the family, we're going to talk about church or whatever you got going on, and then eventually we're going to get to the question, okay? But if I don't focus on that person to person, I'm missing a whole lot. And this is not person to person. The way that we have been taught is often not person to person, despite it being exactly what it should be. So what happens when a person of color, a black person, comes into or says, okay, I've gotten over the stigma of my community and the stigma of being internalized if I struggle with mental illness, right, because mm -hmm. I'm crazy, mm -hmm. but I'm really not. Um, I'm just struggling with this illness. What happens when they come into such an environment and they're then they're met with what you talk about? What, what does this do to them? We talk about it. Okay, so I... Um, but if it's not you, if it's if it, somebody, if it's somebody who's from a different, mm -hmm. who doesn't understand this, mm -hmm. what does it do to that client? It just adds to it. I, and I think, you know, many, many people um, think there's, there's stigma around mental health. There's stigma around being crazy and being labeled crazy because we're all a little bit crazy like we talked about at lunch. Uh-huh. And, you know, if I go and I talk to somebody and I don't connect with that person, and I feel like they're trying to, they have this cookie cutter model that they're trying to use on me, and they don't bring up things like Sandra Bland, and they don't, you know, bring up whatever is 
all the other things that are going on and they just want me to talk about my problems with my husband, which is a big thing, mm -hmm. but I got all this other stuff going on too that we need to be able to talk about. I'm going to feel like I can't connect and then I'm never going to try it again. Mm -hmm. And we often miss that seeing a therapist is like anything else. If I don't like my primary care doctor, I'm not going to stop going to a doctor. Right. I'm going to go find somebody else. Right? If, if I have a teacher that I really like and there's another teacher that I've heard all sorts of bad stuff about, I'm going to do everything I can to take that really good teacher. Mm -hmm. right? And we keep trying and we go, if I go to church and I don't like one particular church, I'm going to try another church. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, with therapists, we feel like, well, if I tried it once and it wasn't a good fit, then it, therapy's just not for me. The other piece, I'm going to add a couple of pieces. I forgot one while you were talking, so hopefully it'll come back. <laughs> that's normal for me um, <laughs> uh, one thing that I was thinking oh gosh oh I'll just go to the quote um, I was saying to Shania that um, in school I received we received at Wheaton an amazing education it's great it's top-notch I'm not lying to you because the bachelor's was done at Chicago State that's all I'm gonna say and there was a there's a there's a a market difference in the quality that I received okay in any case, when I'm in my office and I get a, should I use that same term? Yeah, sure. Okay, and I get an urban couple, and what I mean by urban, and I'm going to go there, is the ones that are about that life. You understand what I'm saying? They real hood. There is not a theory out there that helps me to associate with and build relationship, not just rapport, with them. So I have to... A, I grew up in the city, in the hood, with a, in a two-parent family, going to church. I'm that chick, and I had a great life. However, I grew up in the hood, and I'm still in the hood. I like being in the hood, and I don't care, because, you know, whatever. So, um, I'm, again, by urban people. Now, while I grew up in the hood, I was not in a gang. I don't know anything about gang life, gang culture, other than what I heard. Um, I fought as a child because my mouth was big, and if you talk crazy to me, I hit you until my mom got that out of my system with spankings. You understand what I'm saying? I was that kid. I was a bad, <laughs> active little child with a smart mouth. And so my mother, being a mother, corrected the behavior. So now this urban family comes in, and they are talking about disrespect. The way they talk to each other is very disrespectful. The way they think, it's just so out there. There's not a theory that I ever heard of. And so in the moment, I am cultivating, creating, and integrating my own theory all at one time so that these people can connect to me and I can connect to them. Because when I just talk about things as I would with you, it went right over their head. And I'm sitting here going, oh, okay, Jesus. I do this a lot. Jesus, <laughs> I don't even know where to go. What I mean, you don't have, what? The, so I say things like, so have you all ever had a conversation about how you want to be talked to? Do you appreciate being called a bitch all day? Well, no, we never talked about it. Well, let's talk about that today. Because if in gang culture and in this life, everybody is a bitch, you might not, but I need to get you to a place where respect, what I think of respect and what they think of respect, they're two different definitions. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is not a theory developed that's going to help me in that moment. Because I'm done. Ed and continuing education still does not cover that. You understand what I'm? Okay. So the other thought, it went away. It may come back. 
Oh, let me just say quickly, um, I'm going to keep going for a few minutes, so if you got to go, go. But we're African-Americans, and we're going to keep going because we're more about the conversation and the culture than the time. Mm -hmm. so, um, so continuing just really quickly, so if the stigma, if, okay, I overcome these stigmas and I go into this um, environment and I'm not met with somebody who understands me, that contributes more to the stigma, right? right. Because we already, there's already a distrust of yeah. institutions and systems that exist, right? Which is part of the stigma, mm -hmm. right? So these institutions are the white man's institutions. Mm -hmm. They don't serve us, they hurt us. I'm not going to go and tell somebody my business. Oh, that's a lot. I hear that. I'm going to go, go tell somebody my business who don't even understand, right? And then, if I'm going for somebody who don't make me feel safe, mm -hmm. right? So I want to feel safe. I don't want to talk about race and issues that affect me every day. And if I can't, mm -hmm. it's going to be a problem, right? right? So this continues the stigma if that environment isn't present, mm -hmm. right? And it's not, I think it's been hard because the field, like I'll have, I have so many people come up to me and say, hey, do you know an African-American therapist or counselor, right? Because they want somebody who they feel can relate to them, and that's not always available. So these stigmas exist, the distrust, everything within and externally that stop, right? That stop this conversation. Now, let's turn to what are we do, what do we do in our community to empower ourselves and to um, encourage ourselves? Because there's been a resilience and a strength in the black community that's not always talked about. There's a bit of, we always talk about the weaknesses and the victimization and all these other pieces or the crimes or whatever. But let's talk about the resilience and strength a little because people have had to survive. Mm -hmm. They've had to cope and they've had to figure out how. So let's go into talking a little bit about that. And it may look different, it looks different than what we know, right? Than what people know. But let's talk a little bit about that really quick. So we'll talk about the church first, okay? So the church has been a huge place for that for people. And so one of the things is you can't have a conversation with a black person without talking about faith or church, right? We're taught not to really bring up spirituality unless it's brought up in a session. But the reality is most folk have grown up in the church or been to church or their grandma dragged them to church, and they so they know about church, and they've had that faith, or they even if they're going to church, they're praying, to, they're praying, you know, and stuff like that. So let's talk about that piece and the strength in the church, Pastor. So resilience in the church. Um, how do people cope? And um, I think that I think that by and large today, young people. There's a, there's a bit of disconnect in terms of that older generation, I call them during the, the boomers and those prior to who are trying to navigate all these difficulties. I think the resilience today looks more like the BLM, the We Charge Genocide, the various activist movements that young people are trying their best to galvanize their efforts and say, this is wrong, and we're going to collectively do something about it. Now, the church has been slow to adopt these things and to embrace these young people who have been out there moving systems around, challenging, breaking down, calling out uh, these unjust systems. I want to say first and foremost that that is one way in which young people, and there may not, and I, I, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of young people have said that the church has been too slow. 
in order to adopt some of these things. I think that that, I think that, I want to say that first, but I think that the activist piece is part of the conversation that faith communities have historically had because the Southern Christian Leadership Fund, or Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Joseph Lowry and uh, C.T. Vivian and Dr. King and all these other individuals who were pressing and, and they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Google, they couldn't do a Facebook meetup. You know, they weren't posting stuff, but they met up on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and they were embodying that same spirit. So faith communities have to regain that traction because young people are ready to do it again. But faith communities have been that place, right? Correct. So you see this. On a Sunday morning in church, we have this prayer time, right? And it's actually very therapeutic. People get up and share what's going on with them. You know, we have one member who shares about her bipolar. Other people share about grief and loss and so on. And so faith communities have always been either that place of rejoicing or pain um, or sharing pain, and it's been very healing for the community. Now, unfortunately, faith communities sometimes don't push people to get additional professional help, which is one of the major issues, but it's been one of those solaces in our community um, that it continues to be one of those strengths that people turn to. What else would we say are strengths that, or um, what else are strengths that we've known that exist within the black community that help people to continue to cope? I think the familial piece. One of the things growing up black that um, I, I noticed and when I went away to Wheaton and, and was looking for a church, that, and I'm using the church because like you said, every, every conversation with black people goes back to church in some capacity. When I went to church, what was missing for me was the familial piece. Black church has a very familial, we're family type of feel that I did not experience, and it's very notable, noticeable when I went to a very lovely church that was not um, predominantly black or run by black people. So even if they have a large black presence, if it's not run by black people, that familial piece that stemmed from all of the things that we have talked about. Church is the place to go. It was the meetup place. When we were slaves, we were three-fifth human. We weren't human. When I went to church, I was a whole person. I had somebody to connect to that got me, blah, blah, blah. So even though, so part of the empowering is educating our churches because it continues to be churches, mosques, et cetera. It continues to be a place where we as a people go for resources. Um, and, and, our families, so in our own families, encouraging it, talking about it. Because when I have um, clients that I'm referring for services, I don't, even if they say, well, do you know another black therapist? I tell them, my therapist is a bald head white dude. And that guy gets me. But until somebody has an experience where they feel valued, validated, and not dismissed and understood, will they be able to say, oh, well, maybe the other can understand me because the previous experiences I've had was where they couldn't. And so, you know, I think it's one thing we said, like when we unite, when we really unite, when, and, and to unite with me, you have to understand me. Yes. It's one thing to invite me to your house. It's another thing to come to mine. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so what we do a, a lot is I'm invited to all of the white people house. <laughs> but when I invite white people, when I invite them to my house, do they come? That speaks to the relationship. You don't understand my story because you're not a part of my story. And so that connectivity 
is there. And so the family is a very strong, solid source. One of the things that was a frustrating conversation in my cohort um, when we talked about um, Western culture being an individualized individuation, what's that term? Individuation. Uh-huh, individualistic culture. I said the black community is more collectivistic. And then I got argued with by a non-black cohort about my culture. And so then I was told that it was abnormal. My culture is my culture. And so what is normal in my culture, what's a strength in our culture, is the family system being supportive. I remember being always with grandma, cousins, aunties. The family stays together. We don't move and have one in Tennessee, one in Colorado, one in here. We're all here. And that is a strength, knowing that I have somebody with me. And so each one reach one, each one teach one. So for me, I just keep grabbing. Okay, so we're gonna get wrap up. Now I wanna talk about music and the arts is a big part of our coping and our strength, right? So there's a song here, I, I got the lyrics, I don't know it, my husband knows it, um, but I'll read the lyrics and we'll play it at the end. Um, it's by Pete Rock and CL Smooth called Troy and it's from 1992. And it goes, I reminisce for a spell or shall I say think back 22 years ago to keep it on track. The birth of a child on the 8th of October, a toast but my granddaddy came sober. Counting all the fingers and the toes, now I suppose you hope the little black boy grows, huh? 18 years younger than my mama, but I really got beatings because the girl loved drama. In single parenthood, there I stood. By the time she was 21, had another one. This one's a girl, let's name her Pam. Same father's the first, but you don't give a damn. Irresponsible, plain, not thinking. Papa said chill, but the brother keep winking. Still he won't down you or tear you out your hide on your side while the baby maker slide. But mama got wise to the game, the youngest of five kids. Hun, here it is. After 10 years without no spouse, mama's getting married in the house. Listen, positive over negative for the women and master. Mother queen's rising a chapter. Deja vu, tell you what I'm gonna do when they reminisce over you, my God. So you see, this is him telling his story. And it's always been you know, people cry down the music and the creative arts and so on, but a lot of therapeutic outlet has come through the creative arts, right? And the rapping and the songs, when you listen to the lyric, and even gospel songs, you hear gospel songs playing on the regular radio station, right? Um, because it talks about putting your burdens down. A lot of the lyrics, putting your burdens down putting your all, you know, dealing with your stress. Like, it's, it's therapeutic. It's been a, a, a source of outlet for people. You wanna say more about that? Yeah, it's cathartic. It's all day cathartic. It makes, um, you know, so P-Rock and CL Smooth, I was 15 years old listening to that, um, listening to that song come out and just enjoying the, 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 the mastery of it. Now, I don't, I'm dating myself, but I think that the, that the um, I think that the, the art form of, of hip hop continues to do that, although my ears, my ability to hear some the way in which they weave, like Pete Rock did, uh, the story, the narrative through there is, 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 is gone away. But I think that that's the whole point, is I'm gonna artistically uh, tell you my story through prose, and it's going to be a way in which I, I get it out there. The same thing is true, one quick thing about, bringing back to the church, one thing I was telling you this, is that historically in the black church, People that have gone to church before may have been to one of them churches where, they, where the preacher at the end goes, hmm, and starts to humming and stuff like that. 
And, and so historically, why that is similar to the art form of this is because the pain is so real, and yet the truth that I'm proclaiming and holding to is so vivid and, and similarly real that I have to sing about it. That I literally have to sing about how I'm able to get through this pain because uh, God has been on my side. And so for the art forms that have been so helpful for the African-American community, hip-hop in every major city, according to my colleague here, my boy here, is that it is the, it is the, it is one of the most pervasive and impactful art forms in every large city in the world, not yes. just America, yeah. not just America. Every hip hop, hip hop is the city, hip hop is the collective voice of the people uh, across the world. Yes, yes. So, okay, so what is one, uh, let's talk advice now, as we wrap up, to students, to instructors, to counselors, what, are one, what is one piece of advice, first of all, to students or to people out there who think they may be struggling with mental illness and are afraid, the stigmas and all these other pieces, especially people of color, African Americans, what, are, what is one piece of advice you would give, all of you would give, to those individuals and to the students, you know, um, in lines of, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? Get help. I think, I think that's the biggest one. There is help available. So go and take advantage of that. And remember, if the first one isn't a good fit, if the 10th one isn't a good fit, keep trying until you find that person that can help you. What she said, get help. Um, because when I get a bad plumber, I don't ever not use a plumber again. That was <laughs> twisted. Um, I just find a different plumber. And if that one sucks, then I call my friend and say, hey, do you know a good plumber? Everybody's had the contractor bite. So again, get help because there's resources available and you may get sucky people, so fire them and keep going. If you're the safe place, if you're the safe space for that person that comes to you, believe them. Believe them. And one of the things I wanna say is take pride in who you are. You know, our culture has, and it's interesting, because growing up in Barbados, like black people, 95% were black, and we grew up with music, and Bob Marley was you know, from the islands, and it was prideful to, you know, uh, the blackness, okay? Two years ago, Beyonce, the Super Bowl, people had an issue, because she did the black, you know, the sign and the afro and stuff, so take pride in who you are. No, black is beautiful, and appreciate you know, who you are, um, and empower one another, okay? Don't give in to those standards, those arbitrary standards that are from colonial times, okay? And that will be huge, understand. Don't buy into the black on black crime either, right? Yes. Don't buy into those messages that you are less than. There's a monograph out there by a professor at the University of Illinois. The title of the book is The Myth of Black on Black Crime. Yeah, um. yeah don't buy into those messages about yourself that are negative, mm -hmm. right? and get help, be empowered, come. You know, we are here at the Counseling Center and all over, you know, somebody will partner with you. It's not a weakness to get help. It's not. What I tell my students is foolish is when you need help and you don't seek help, and then you mess up. Mm -hmm. Or you need help, but you don't take the opportunity of it, you know. So what advice would you give to others out there? So people who work with students and work with people who are mentally ill, but mainly educators and counselors and so on, what advice you would give to them about working with students of color? Be aware of history. 
be aware of current times and the way that the two come together and continue to play out in every single day in many, many different ways. Be aware of who you are to them. Um, if somebody trusted you enough to talk to you, then be um, loving enough to listen. Be what you want people to be to you. So in your hardest time, what would you want? Would you want to be questioned or would you want to be comforted? So be a comfort. Um, I'm thinking about my context when I'm counseling students and just um, drop your defenses. Let them go. Drop your defenses. You, in, this com in this conversation, when I, and, I, and I share with and I talk to students, it's not, it's not students of color that come to me. It's white students that come to me. It's Caucasian students in the school I teach at that want to have a conversation with me. And um, uh, they, want, they want help because they want to know how to clarify or talk or know what to do. And I tell them, um, well, don't, don't, don't automatic, automatically throw up a wall. Uh, drop your defenses. I would also say be aware that they're already coming in not trusting you, okay? So you have to, might be have to want to put the hand out there, right? So a history has been there of not trusting. Mm -hmm. So reach out. Mm -hmm. You know, we always say, I hear over and over, well, the students should know to come for help. Reach out. We need to, sometimes the onus is on us to say, we're that safe space. Mm -hmm. Because you don't trust, right? And for a lot of our students of color, an institution like Moraine, you know, Moraine, Moraine is very diverse. But it's still new for them. It's still predominantly white, but we have a large Latino, a large Arab American population, and so on. And for some students who came from predominantly black schools and black neighborhoods and so on, it's a little intimidating, frankly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you know, they might have seen a couple white teachers, but that was it. They didn't have relationships. So, you know, be aware, reach out, and build those relationships as well. And know that that will take time. Just because I say that I'm safe does not mean that the other person feels safe with me, right? That takes a lot of time and that takes building that relationship and giving that time and, and just being present with them. Yeah. Okay, so I wanna say, do we have any questions? By the way, I know we don't have a lot of time and the panel's here to talk to it after, but any quick questions anybody has? Um, well, I wanna say thank you to Cindy and Lissandra and Ernest for coming out. And um, for being here, I know Tiana, you, are you coming up to say anything? Um, okay, so thank you all for coming. I hope you learned from the conversation and um, enjoy the conversation. You know we're over in the S building, you can find me over there, I'm around. Um, and we're here, you know, and reach out. So thank you all very much. <laughs>